If you have a Bible this morning, turn with me, please, to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 1. The Gospel of Matthew, chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible, you can find the text in your pew Bible on page 1 in the New Testament. Gospel of Matthew, chapter 1. Our, our passage this morning is fairly long, so I encourage you to have your Bibles open and look at this text with me. Matthew, chapter 1, verse 18, through chapter 2, verse 23. But I promise I will not be long-winded, even though the passage is long. But I have been known to break my promises, so we'll see how that goes. Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. Hear the Word of God. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quickly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord has spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Chapter 2. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who was born? King of the Jews. For we saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was greatly troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, You go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me the word, that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them, until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and they worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt. And remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious 
and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years older or under. Two years old or under. According to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men, then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose, took the child and his mother, and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard the, that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled. He shall be called a Nazarene. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we encounter this text this morning where God the Son becomes Jesus the Jewish man. We encounter this text this morning where in the beginning was the Word and the Word who was with God and the Word who was God, that this Word becomes flesh and dwelt among us. And we encounter this text wherein we see His glory. The glory from the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. And Father, we marvel this morning because there's so much here that is mysterious, so much here that we cannot understand. But what we can understand is that Jesus Christ is worthy of our worship this morning because He is the Christ, the Savior of the world, and the Son of God. So, Father, we ask that you would help us this morning to see Jesus high and lifted up in this text and to understand that this story that Matthew tells us is the story of how God the Son becomes the man to save the world from its sins. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week, we began a two-part sermon series that asked this question. Why Christmas? We notice from chapter 1, verses 1 through 17, that the answer was and is because Jesus is the Christ, the Savior of the world. That's why we celebrate Christmas. So many things about Christmas that are beautiful and are great and that are part of our tradition, but the fundamental reason we celebrate this holiday is because Jesus is, in fact, the Savior of the world. And we saw that by means of Matthew's statement in chapter 1, verse 1, and then that genealogy that reminded us of this fact. This morning we asked the question again, why Christmas? And sorry to do a repeat, but the answer is the same. Because Jesus is the Christ, the Savior of the world. And He therefore demands our worship. That's in fact precisely what Matthew pushes, I think, in this chapter chapter 1 and then in chapter 2, is that He's the Savior of the world who desires and demands our worship of Him. Let me state it this way. In Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 17, we get the thesis of the Gospel of Matthew. Jesus is the Christ, the Savior of the world. In Matthew chapter 1, verse 18, and really until the end of the Gospel, we get the story the narrative that proves He is the Christ and the Savior of the world. And in our passage this morning, we get this infancy narrative that shows us that this Jesus is not some ordinary babe, but He's God in the flesh. There are three things I want us to think about this morning from this passage, and the first is this. Jesus is the promised Christ, the promised Savior of Jews. Remember that. 
The gospel is a gospel that is the power of God unto salvation for Jews first and also for Greeks. And the story of Jesus is a story that reminds us that God has made promises, yes, to the world, but also to the Jewish people. And God in Christ fulfills those promises. So here's the story. First, we notice in chapter 1, verse 18, these two figures, Joseph and Mary. And the narrative tells us in verse 18 that the birth of Jesus Christ took place like this, verse 18. His mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph. They weren't legally married yet. The betrothal was not like the modern day engagement in that the modern day engagement can be broken. But in the Jewish world in the first century, the betrothal was legally binding even though it was not a consummated marriage. Which means this, Joseph and Mary were betrothed to each other, but they could not do married people stuff. You know what I mean? Which is why, verses 19 and 20, when Joseph finds out that Mary is with child, he panics. And this has got to be his thinking. And this is my preacher liberty here, but I think it's a fair guess. She's pregnant. I'm not the father. Therefore, she must be guilty of sin. Particularly the sin of fornication, which has resulted in this child. And as a result of Joseph's fear and worry, and because he's a righteous man, the text tells us, in verse 19, he wanted to put her away quietly. He wanted, your translations might say, to divorce her. So they're not married on the one hand. But the betrothal is legally binding. And so he wants to, to break that betrothal because he's righteous. And, I think, if you read between the lines, because he's afraid. He knows full well that Mary would be subject to public ridicule and shame if, in fact, she has committed fornication. Just read Deuteronomy, for example. Fornicators were stoned. And so, Joseph, being a righteous man, certainly wanting to protect his own righteousness, but maybe also wanting to protect Mary from this shame. But as the narrative continues, we know that God has a different story in mind here. So God, as He does often in this narrative, He intervenes. And He intervenes by means of an angel. And He tells Joseph that Mary is not guilty of sin. She is not guilty of fornication. But rather, chapter 1, verse 20, Do not fear, Joseph, son of David, to take Mary as your wife. Now notice this, For that which is conceived is her in her is from the Holy Spirit. Joseph, this is not a man child. This is a God child. You hear that? And you're asking me, seminary professor, explain that to me. Here's my answer. I can't. And come to Southern Seminary and study with us. There's some things that we can't understand. This is a miracle. And I hope you understand this. We do not have a logical faith. There are certain things about the Christian faith that make no sense. For example, dead people getting up, right? Makes no sense. It's a miracle. Just like the resurrection. God and His supernatural power worked in a mysterious way by the power of the Spirit. And He impregnated this virgin, probably teenager, with this baby. It's very important that you realize that this is not as some have accused. Now, I want to be careful here because I realize there are kids in the audience. So I'm trying to keep this G today. But this is not, as some have argued, God violating Mary. It's not what's happening here. 
the narrative is emphasizing that something happens here that violates the natural order of the cosmos. There is no relationship between a man and a woman here that gives birth to this child. In fact, notice chapter 1, verse 18. Before they came together, before Joseph and Mary did married people stuff, she was found with child from the Holy Spirit. Verse 20. The child in her womb, Joseph, is from the Holy Spirit. We can't fully explain what's happening, but we can explain this. The Holy Spirit of God is giving us insight here that Jesus, this baby, is set apart, anointed by God. That's why the Spirit's mentioned here. Because this baby in her womb is a Spirit-anointed child. And that's all the text says. Let me say something here theological. When you think about Jesus the man, you've got to remember this about Him. He existed prior to the manger scene. He did not become a reality when He became a baby. In the beginning was the Word, John 1.1, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, John 1.14, and the Word became flesh. God the Son, hear this carefully, God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, has always existed with God the Father. There has never been a time when Jesus was not He's always existed. But in the incarnation, in the manger scene, when Jesus becomes a man, God the Son is becoming a man. You understand that? Jesus does not become a God. If you believe He became a God, that's not Christianity. God the Son became a man and remained God as a man. That's Orthodox Christianity. So what's happening here in this narrative is a mystery. It's a divine mystery. And what the author wants you to grab hold of this morning is to recognize that this child is the promised Christ. And the only way God could have done what He promised to His people was if God Himself became a man like us. That's what's happening here in the story. So Joseph says, Okay, I think I'll marry her. Verse 21. She'll bear a son. You'll call his name Jesus. For he will save his people from their sins. That's what Jesus means, remember. Savior. Joseph, this baby is going to save you from your sin. Imagine that. The child you raise up in your home is going to be your Savior, Joseph. Everything God's promised, He's going to do it through this baby. And Joseph, you had nothing to do with this child being born. It's coming from a greater father. And then Matthew gives us insight in verse 22, verse 23, that all of this is happening not by coincidence, but all of this is happening to fulfill what God had promised through Isaiah the prophet, quoting in verse 23, Isaiah 7, verse 14, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Hear that loudly and clearly. Two names for Jesus. Savior and God with us. What's happening in this story? This is Christmas, folks. God Himself, the second person of the Trinity, is taking on human flesh, becoming a man. And when God Himself steps on the very creation that He Himself created, God is with us. Literally. Not symbolically anymore. In the Old Testament, God was symbolically with His people via the tabernacle. But Jesus is the tabernacle of God. Jesus is the presence of God. Jesus is God with us, Joseph. That's who this baby is. Verse 24. So Joseph said 
in obedience to what the Lord said. Okay, verse 24, when Joseph awoke from his sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, verse 25, but knew her not. Notice this statement. But knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Joseph here is obeying, isn't he? And Matthew is emphasizing again and again and again with a statement like this. He's once again emphasizing this is not Joseph's child. This is God's child. So here's some practical application related to this first point. Number one, understand this about why Christmas. Jesus is the divine Christ. If Jesus is only a man... He cannot save you. Do you understand that? If he is only a man, if he was only a man, he's still in the tomb. Dead people don't get up, right? I've preached many funerals in my 19 years of being a Christian. And I haven't seen one person get out of that casket. But not with Jesus. He gets up on Sunday morning. Why? Because he is 100% God. Fully God. Which is why in the Gospel of Matthew, he is healing people of diseases. It's why he's walking on water. This is why, do you remember this story? This is why when he dies in the Gospel of Matthew on the cross, when he dies, dead people get up. Remember that story? He dies. Read Matthew chapter 27 and 28. He dies on the cross, and dead people resurrect. But secondly, he's 100% man. If Jesus is only God, the kind of salvation that we need, he can't give it. You know why? Because the only way we can be saved from our sins is if God himself dies for them. That's why. And what's happening in the incarnation is that moment in history where God the Son invades the world, takes on flesh, becomes like us, and dies to save us. He's 100% God and 100% man. He is not like some of my students used to say. He is not God Jr. He's fully God and fully man. So if you're suffering today, I said last week, if you're suffering today, you have a God-man Christ who sympathizes with your weaknesses. He knows what it's like to be tempted, Matthew chapter 4. He knows what it's like to suffer. He knows what it's like to be lonely. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Remember that line? He knows what it's like to be abandoned by his followers, by his friends. He can sympathize with you. Fully God, fully man. That's why Christmas. And a third application. I hope you see it in this passage. All of God's promises, every single one of them is fulfilled in Jesus. The promise of God to save a people for His glory, is fulfilled in Jesus. The promise to give Abraham a descendant is fulfilled in Jesus. The promise to give David a descendant is fulfilled in Jesus. The promise to crush the seed of the serpent, Genesis 3.15, by means of the seed of the woman is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Christmas is about God's promises being fulfilled. Why Christmas? Because God wants to show us He's a promise-keeping God. You have a habit of breaking promises. I have a habit of changing my mind. I suppose you can call that promise breaking. My son will call it promise breaking. But I change my mind quite a bit. God's not a God who breaks promises. He keeps them. You can trust this God. When God says, I'm going to save you, He will do it. He might not do it how you expect. Israel did not expect a bloody Jesus from Nazareth to be the means by which their salvation would come. But he brought it, right? God might not work for you the way you think. He should work for you. But remember this, God will fulfill his promises to this church and to his people.
first truth. Jesus is the promised Messiah. He's come to save Jews and Gentiles. Second truth. We should worship Jesus as the Christ and as the Savior of Jews and Gentiles. Now let me just remind you of some things I've said in, in weeks before. The truth that Jesus is the Savior of the Jewish people, that is great if you're Jewish, right? It's kind of like saying this. The truth that the University of Kentucky Wildcats is the greatest basketball team ever in the history of college basketball, that's great for those of us who are UK fans. But if you're not a UK fan, you don't really care about that. But Jesus is not just the Savior of Jews. He's the Savior of Gentiles. And everybody... Black or white, rich or poor, Republican or Democrat or independent, everybody's a Gentile unless that person is Jewish. And what we see in this particular chapter, chapter 2, you have Gentiles who are part of these promises. So chapter 2, here's what happens, verses 1 through 12. Chapter 2, verse 1, you get this mention of these wise men. 2-1. After Jesus was born, 2-1, in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men came from the east to Jerusalem. Let me just stop and explain a little bit what is happening here. Some of your translations might say magi instead of wise men. We don't know a lot about these people. We don't even know how many there were, contrary to many manger scenes that you'll see. We don't know if there were only three. The text doesn't say that. It just says they brought three gifts. But it doesn't say there were only three wise men. What we do know about these people is that they were from the east, which I think means they were not, Gen they were not Jews. They were Gentiles. Moreover, what we know is they were, familiar, they were familiar with this prophecy in Numbers 24. In Numbers 24, you have this prophecy in verses in verse 17, regarding this star coming out of Jacob. Quote Numbers 24, verse 17. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. It shall crush the forehead of Moab and break down all the sons of Sheth. Now here's something very important about that statement. In Numbers 24, a Gentile is giving this prophecy. In Matthew chapter 2, those wise men from the east are not Jews, they're Gentiles. They're following this star, believing by faith, Numbers 24, and they're following this star so that they could worship, the text says, worship this baby who was born as king. What's happening in this story? Good news, the Gentiles, the nations, are streaming to Jerusalem to worship their God. That's what's happening. So if you read further throughout the narrative, you get verse 2. They said, verse 2, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it arose. They remembered Numbers 24, and they saw that star, and they followed that star to Bethlehem, believing by faith that the Messiah had been born, fulfilling all sorts of prophecies in the Old Testament about the Gentiles fleeing to Jerusalem to see the glory of Jerusalem's God. But when they arrived, something happened. They met this scoundrel named King Herod. King Herod had all sorts of issues, to put it nicely. One issue was he was greatly paranoid about lo losing his kingdom. He was the king of the Jews. And by the way, he was placed as king of the Jews by the Romans. Not by God. Of course, God is in control of everything, but technically speaking, in terms of the story, the Romans placed Herod as king of the Jews. And when Herod hears about this new king who was born, he wants to recruit the religious leaders in the community. And he asks the religious leaders where this king would be born, verse 4. And they told him, verse 5, quoting Micah 5.2 and 2 Samuel 5.2, that he would be born in Bethlehem of Judah. And to make a long story short, Herod tells these magi, these wise men, to go find that child 
to find that king and to bring him back to him so that he too can worship this king. But the wise men altogether ignored Herod's request. But instead they arrive, verses 10 and 11 tell us, at the place where the star led them, which was to the manger, which was to the place where the child was born. And notice what the wise men do. The Magi, verse 11, they fell down and they said, Jesus, what would you buy me for Christmas? Is that what they said? They worshipped Him. They offered Him gifts. They gave Him gifts fitting for a king. Frankincense and myrrh and gold. This is a baby. <laughs> but Matthew is telling us, no, it's not. This is God Himself, the promised Messiah. And these Gentiles are bringing these gifts to show that this is in fact the one whom God has promised to save Jews, yes, but also Gentiles, and they worship Him. Why Christmas, folks? Because we are required to worship Jesus Christ as King. Do you understand this about Jesus? He doesn't share His glory with anybody. you understand that? Let me just say it like this. God loves God more than God loves anything. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? He does. He loves His own glory. How else could God be God if He loved anything more than God? And how else could Jesus be the King if He loved another's kingdom more than His own? And Christmas is reminding us every single year that King Jesus wants glory and honor and praise and laud and pomp and circumstance. He wants all of that after the cross and resurrection, right? Before the cross and resurrection, he's in a manger. He's in a donkey on a donkey. But this manger scene is pointing us to the fact that this baby who was born was born a king because he left the heavenly kingdom. And these Gentiles show up and worship him as this king. You read, for example, Micah chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, and 2 Samuel chapter 5, verse 2, you see that in fact Jesus is fulfilling here in this birth scene everything that was promised. You see texts like Isaiah chapter 40 to 66. In Isaiah 40 to 66, God promises to send salvation to His people, and He promises to include Gentiles within that salvation promise, and He promises that there will be a day when Zion would be happy and glad, and when the Gentiles would stream in and worship Zion, and that day happens, the incarnation of Jesus Christ. So there are a few applications for you to glean from this passage. Number one, why Christmas? Because we want to worship and honor our King and the power of the Spirit. We want to worship Jesus. What is worship? There are all sorts of definitions for worship. But I think worship should never be limited to words only, although words are part of worship. But words also reflect actions. And so worship is shown by means of how you live your life. You might be in this sanctuary this morning, but you don't worship Jesus. If you want to esteem Jesus as worthy of worship, if you want to exalt Him as Lord and King of your life, you must obey Him. That's worship. Worship is obeying Jesus as King. A King Worthy of your worship is a king who is worthy of your obedience and your allegiance, right? That's what he wants today. That's what these gifts represent and symbolize. He wants young people. He wants you to be pure until you get married. Worshiping Jesus means if you love Jesus, young people, and not just young people, but especially young people, if you love Jesus, stay pure until you get married and give yourself to your husband or your wife. That's how you worship Jesus, right? You are quiet. I'll answer my own question. Right! Amen, Jarvis. Right! Preach it. 
Obeying Jesus is not simply saying, I obey you. It is giving up yourself to Him, losing everything, to gain everything. And I mean losing a boyfriend or a girlfriend who doesn't love Jesus, or maybe someone who says he or she does, but is simply playing the Jesus card to satisfy, satisfy or gratify their own pleasures. Give your life to Jesus and worship you worship Jesus with your speech as well. I don't know about you, but my tongue can get me in a lot of trouble. Preachers have a ministry of words. And our words can kill or they can build up. One way we worship Jesus as Lord is we speak to people, about people, and of people in ways that honor the King, right? And that's hard. It's easy to drop Twitter bombs or... Facebook grenades on people. Those things don't honor Jesus, do they? One way we worship the King is by speaking in ways that glorify Him. Giving ourselves up in how we act and how we speak. How we spend our time. And you can learn a lot about what we worship by how we spend our time, can't we? If Jesus is Lord of your heart, Give Him more than just this hour on Sunday morning. Give Him a little bit of time on Monday through Saturday as well. And seek to esteem Him as King over your life, not just over this one-hour service, as important as this service is, but esteem Him as Lord over all so that every day of your life you're thinking, Jesus, how can I please you today? How can I worship you today, Jesus, with my words, with my deeds? Why Christmas? We want to worship and honor Jesus Christ. Third and finally, first, Jesus is the promised Christ for Jews. Second, Jesus is the one who should be worshipped for Jews and Gentiles. And third, Jesus is the Son of God. Chapter 2, verses 13 to 23. This is an interesting part of the story. You have Herod in this section frustrated. Because Herod did not get his way. He does not like it that a new king has been born. And he wants, frankly, I think, to see this new king to kill him. This is why, in fact, he is enticing these magi to make him aware of where this king is. And the, I think the narrative of chapter 2, 13 to 23, proves that very point. But God once again intervenes, doesn't he? And by the way, did you notice how many times in the narrative God intervenes? He intervenes and he tells Joseph, Joseph, do not divorce Mary. And now he's intervening to tell Joseph, take the child to Egypt because Herod wants to kill him. Verse 13. When they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise! Take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt. This line drips with irony. Drips with it. Let's read Exodus. In the Old Testament, Egypt was not a place of refuge for the people of God. It was a place of bondage, and slavery. So therefore God intervened. And he worked so that Pharaoh would release the Jews. And Pharaoh's heart was hardened and followed the Jews. And God wiped out Pharaoh and his army in the Red Sea, and he saved Israel. But now you have Egypt serving as a place of refuge for this child. I think two things are happening here. Number one, we see that God is in absolute control over the birth narrative of Jesus Christ. Nothing can thwart God's plan. I hope that encourages you this morning. ISIS can't defeat our God. Nothing can defeat the plan of the sovereign king of the universe who has determined to save a people for his glory. And proof of that today is when Christians are threatened by radical Islamic terrorists, they choose death over life in converting to Islam. 
That's proof that God's plan cannot be thwarted. Not by the devil, not by ISIS, not by sin, and not by Herod. There's something else here I think we need to grab hold of. I think Matthew's presenting to us this reality about Jesus that he is the true and perfect Israel. In the Old Testament, in fact, the very verse that Matthew cites from Hosea chapter 11, verse 1, God calls Israel his son. So if you read Hosea, Israel was unfaithful to God, and God judged Israel because of that. And God is reminding Israel in Hosea chapter 11, verse 1, that he called her, he called her out of Egypt. And more particularly, he calls Egypt the son, but other places where God is identified as the, the husband of Israel as well. And Israel's the bride. But in Hosea 11, verse 1, Israel is the son. So here what you have is, is Matthew is applying a verse from the Old Testament that refers to Israel, to Jesus, because Jesus is the new Israel. That is, he's the new and perfect son of God. Let me say it this way. Jesus is the light to the nations. Jesus is the one through whom the nations will be blessed. Israel was a light to the nations in the Old Testament, right? But Jesus is the new Israel. And through Jesus, the new and perfect Son of God, you have the pathway open wide for the nations to come in and to worship the one and true God. So therefore, verse 15 says that out of Egypt, God called His Son, referring to Jesus. Another example of this truth is seen in Matthew chapter 3. When Jesus is baptized, what happens? God speaks. And what does God say? This is my beloved son. Well, God calls Israel his beloved son in the Old Testament. But now Jesus is the beloved son. What does that mean? Does that mean God has forsaken Israel? Oh, no, 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 no. That means everything God promised to Israel and for the world is fulfilled in Jesus. That's what that means. There's a new sheriff in town. It's a new Israel. There's a new Moses, better Moses. I'll give you another example. Matthew chapter 4. Where does Jesus go after he's baptized? Goes to the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Forty days and forty nights, right? The devil tempts him. Jesus passed the test. Go back to the Old Testament. Israel was in the wilderness for 40 years, and they failed the test, Right? So Matthew is intentionally showing us that Jesus is this new and perfect Israel that benefits and blesses the nations who believe in him. Red and yellow, black and white, they are precious in his sight. You know why? Because Jesus is the Savior of the world as the Son of God, as the new and perfect Israel. And I wish the story ended there, and then we got chapter 3, but we don't. We get this horrible picture in chapter 2, verses 16, down to verse 18, where Herod pours out his wrath on these innocent children, two years old and younger, hoping that he would in fact kill the king who was competing for his throne. And Matthew cites verse 18 from Jeremiah, a voice was heard in Ramah weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. This citation from Jeremiah 31, 15 occurs in Jeremiah in a context where Israel is in exile, distant from God and from their land. And we see here, I think, in the citation of this verse in the life of Jesus, we see that these that this horrible slaughtering of the innocents by Herod is an example that Israel still very much is in exile. Because Herod is acting as the king of the Jews, and, and he's rejecting the Jewish king. And also we see that ultimately what we find in Jeremiah and other places fulfilled in Jesus Christ, and Jesus brings about this promised salvation, but Jews, many Jews, did not receive it, one of which was Herod. And then the narrative ends. Chapter 2, verses 19 down to verse 23. You have a couple of statements I want to point out, then I'll give you some application and we'll be finished. Verse 19, 
Herod died. An angel appeared to Joseph again in a dream. Verse 20, Joseph, Joseph takes the child and his mother to the land of Israel. Verse 23, they go to Nazareth to fulfill, verse 23, what the prophet said about Jesus, that he shall be called a Nazarene. This verse has confused many interpreters, including me. Because there's no place in the Old Testament, no prophecy that I found, that says the Messiah will be a Nazarene. So I think what's happening here is, is that Matthew is saying that Jesus is Nazarene-like in that Nazareth was a very insignificant city. If I recall, it's not even mentioned in the Old Testament. There was nothing good coming out of Nazareth, so said even the Jews, right, in the New Testament. So what does it then mean for the Messiah to be a Nazarene? What does it mean for the prophets to say he will be called a Nazarene, even though they don't specifically say that? It means this, the Messiah will, yes, experience exaltation, but not before he experiences suffering. Follow me? Jesus was a lowly baby born in a manger. But the manger led to exaltation. So on the one hand, he's a king who is worthy of worship and worthy of exaltation. But on the other hand, the way that king invaded history was by means of a lowly manger, that is, by being Nazarene-like. I'll give you some practical application and then we'll call it a morning. First, to go back to what I said earlier, Nothing can alter the plan of our God. Again, read that narrative very carefully. And you see God controlling the story, isn't he? He's intervening by means of angels to tell Joseph what to do and what not to do. When God promises to protect baby Jesus... Jesus will not and cannot die until God's appointed time for him to die on the cross. The way of application, be encouraged. Maybe some of you in this room, maybe you fear death. You'll live as long as God gives you breath. You'll live as long as God gives you life. You are free this morning to live your life trusting in God's ability to protect your life until He's ready to bring you home. Absolutely, we make responsible decisions. We eat healthy, at least I do. We exercise. We sleep. We don't break the speed limit. We make wise and responsible decisions. We avoid chaos whenever we can. And yet we do all of that trusting in God's sovereign hand to protect us. He doesn't only protect Jesus, He also protects His people. I'll give you an example. 1 Peter chapter 1. Peter says this in verse 3. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. In verses 4 and 5, he says this, to an incorruptible, unfading, unfailing inheritance, which is being kept in heaven for you, who are being kept by the power of God. God is in the people-keeping business. God will keep you, brothers and sisters, keep you by His grace. Be encouraged. Why Christmas? Because we worship a God who will save us and who will keep us. That's why I believe in eternal security, by the way. God's a keeping God. Salvation-keeping God. He protects His people just as He protects His Son. Second application. Jesus' pathway to exaltation as the divine Christ was suffering. So I want to remind you of that. It's easy for us to, to forget that Christmas has both joy and pain for Jesus. 
He was born into a manger, and he took on fleshly limitations, right? And he ultimately died and then resurrected from the dead. And the joy of Christmas is there's, there's birth and there's resurrection, but there's also death in between those two things. By way of analogy, there are many people, maybe even in your congregation, who are hurting this Christmas. So we need to remind them, don't we? Remind them that in Jesus Christ, there is joy that can move us to get through our pain. Are you suffering today? Are you discouraged because the holiday seasons bring memories back into your life that, quite frankly, you'd like to suppress? I think the word of the Lord is, is to cling to Christ this Christmas, worship Him, believe by, by faith, believe by faith that this Jesus, this Jesus will help you persevere through your suffering because Jesus is the King who suffered. Suffering led to the cross and exaltation. So brothers and sisters, why Christmas? So many reasons why. But one is because He wants us to worship Him as the Savior of Jewish and Gentile sinners. Amen. And Merry Christmas. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful for the hope of Christmas, for the joy of Christmas, and most importantly, that Jesus Christ is the very centerpiece of this holiday. So God, give us strength this Christmas season to fix our eyes upon Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, and give us confidence from this passage, Lord, to see that you have a plan, that you have worked out to perfection, that you promised to bring about the end of death, you promised to bring about the end of sin, you promised to bring about the, rule, the end of the rule of the devil, and you have fulfilled all of those things by sending your Son, who has died and conquered death and hell in the grave. And so, Lord, please work in us so that we would embrace everything that Christmas represents in the gospel. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.